Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's program, how can we age gracefully? It is your healthcare provider's responsibility to know as well that the medications that you've been on for many, many years might affect you differently as you continue to age. Plus, how do climate change and natural disasters impact our health? Being able to, I think, understand the role of mental health in the face of natural disasters and how that interplays with infectious diseases like dengue or Zika is critical. And why is organ donation a critical way to save lives? More patients are potentially able to be helped through the benefit of a kidney, heart, lung, pancreas um, transplant. We'll have all that and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we examine the effects of climate change and natural disasters on health. Plus, we revisit the importance of organ donation in saving lives. But first, the do's and don'ts that allow us to age with grace. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. 60 years ago, an American who made it to age 65 could expect to live an additional maybe 14 years. Well, today, it's 19 years. And the most important question then is how to grow older healthfully so we can actually enjoy those extra years. Well, here with some answers and advice about how to get the most out of your golden years is Christopher Norman. He's a nurse practitioner with Upstate. State University Geriatricians. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Linda. This is really a topic I enjoy talking about, so I'm looking forward to being here today. Oh, great. Terrific. So I guess the first question that comes to mind is, you know, what do you think about when you think about the components of successful aging? I mean, an over a broad overview. Mm-hmm. The more I practice, the more I found that this is a very individually defined um, Thing, actually, successful aging. In the literature, we would define successful aging as a person that is able to maintain their quality of life and maintain their function as long as possible. And in doing so, that person is able to sort of live their best life. And how that looks, again, is a very individually defined um, journey for most people. But there are some general tips that I hope we can cover today. So clearly things like the physical are very, very important and psychological health being mentally sharp. But there are obviously emotional and spiritual components that also add to health overall. So I thought what we'd do is kind of go through some of these elements and have your take on how, you know what your recommendations could be under those circumstances. Sure. Linda, I'd like to throw in too that there's a cultural domain that we talk about within all of these things as we're advocating physical and social and emotional and spiritual health for older people. And as a culture, I think it is very challenging in this healthcare environment actually to um, really perpetuate successful aging and really healthy living into older age in a lot of ways. Why? Well, you turn on the TV and you drive to work and you're looking at the billboards and all of the 
infomercials that you're seeing are all on anti-aging serums and this is how you can look younger better and all of this stuff and we really don't focus as a culture on the beauty that there can be in actually growing older in a lot of ways so i think taking into account that a very ageist culture that we grow up in and often take for granted um, i think that's a big piece of the conversation as well and just sort of provides a frame for the importance of this kind of topic and I think, conversation. I think that's a crucial point because it strikes me that that is a battle that many of us, and but what I'm hoping, I guess, is as the boomers, which is represents a very large population of sure. people coming into those years, as we've changed many things in our culture, at every point in our development, maybe that will begin to change too, that's very just much, by our sheer numbers. That's very much what I'm excited for, because I think people are demanding a different standard of health care, and that's why conversations like this are that much more important. So let's get cut to the chase. When we talk about your physical health, obviously a lot of people as they age develop multiple kinds of issues in their lives, and they may be on multiple medications, they may have multiple comorbidities, problems that they have. What do you recommend in terms of one basic importance, I mean, how important, for example, is having a good primary care physician? I would say it's very important. Um, be having a good primary care person to sort of walk you through your journey and be able to answer your healthcare questions appropriately, I think having a person that you feel comfortable talking with and is really giving you the time to express the things that are most important for you, um, there's an interesting talk going on soon about how to match up the doctor's agenda versus the patient's agenda. And I think having that person is really crucial. And it also strikes me that with people as they age, they have multiple medications. They have to manage those medications. So you need to kind of have a quarterback. Absolutely. It strikes me in a primary care. And you have all these specialists that you might be sent to. Certainly. It and, needs to be coordinated. And one of the most important pieces there is knowing your medications and knowing what's actually going in your body. It is your healthcare provider's responsibility to know as well that the medications that you've been on for many, many years might affect you differently as you continue to age because the medications might stay the same, but your body does change. And that sometimes can work into different considerations when we think about medication. Also, different behaviors and symptoms may show up Absolutely. as a result of a change in your response to a medication. Very much so. I love geriatrics as a population specialty because this is the only comparison that I'll make between geriatrics and pediatrics. But just as pediatrics are not just little adults, Older adults are not just old adults. We have to treat them in a very different sort of perspective rather than just treating them as a person that's grown older. There are body changes. There are physiology changes. There are all of these different things that you have to consider from a physical, emotional, psychosocial standpoint with all of this. So let's get on to how you can keep yourself as physically fit, for want of a better term. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are the kinds of things that you would recommend to your patients as they age in terms of whether it be aerobic experience or weight training? Just sure. briefly. Sure. The, the general recommendations are a person should be doing some kind of cardiovascular activity. That could be walking, that could be running, that could be anything that gets your heart rate to start beating a little bit more, more than resting, is 20 minutes a day, more days of the week than not. So at least four days a week. And generally speaking, that's not too tall of an order for most people. It's general recommendations are one thing, but what that looks like for you individually can be something different altogether. 
It doesn't have to be going to a gym and getting on a treadmill. It could be walking outside and walking around your neighborhood. It could be taking your dog for a walk. It could be just going out and enjoying the blue sky in the fall weather. It could be something very simple like that. And in the summer and the warm weather and perhaps some gardening. Absolutely. Things of that sure. nature. How about strength training? They make a big point of saying that as we age, we lose muscle mass. Yes, this is very true. And with that loss of muscle mass, it is easier for bones to break. And it is easier for a person to feel more weak and fatigued did not have the same energy that they've always enjoyed before. The, with that, um, a person should be doing some strength training, and that's what we call resistance training, where a person is using an elastic band or doing a curl with a, with a can of soup or a gallon of milk or something to that effect anyway. Um, that could be every other day. We want the body to have about 24 to 36 hours of rest in between those, in between those exercise periods because the nature of that is you have to break down the muscle in order for it to build itself back up stronger and a little bit closer together. So obviously that's an important point that some that it's not like going at it every single day, even if you are so inclined. Very much so. Yes, you can be absolutely motivated with that, but you have to give your body the appropriate chance to rest as well. How about things like balance? Because that's something with, as we get older, falls are a real danger to people sure. because, as you say, bones become more brittle, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So is... Can you, can you train for balance, and is that something that you recommend? You can, and I do, absolutely. Um, balance, actually, I think is a great word for talking about a lot of different aspects of older adult care. Um, but balance is very important, and seeing a physical therapist or working with someone to that effect, uh, to work on those exercises specifically, can offer a person a lot of benefit. How, how important is flexibility? Um, and how can you do something with that? How can you maintain that or, or actually develop it? Balance is a good piece with that as well, actually. Um, having a healthy balance between muscle mass and stretching and being able to sort of move your limbs and compensate appropriately um, is a huge aspect of balance and a huge aspect of gait training and helping a person walk a bit better, maintain their center of gravity better, and therefore prevent falls. So sometimes you think actually getting a physical therapy exam and having someone to be kind of oversee this kind of general physical mm -hmm. fitness is, is a good idea for With physical patients. activity as, as well as others, certainly. Having a person that's there to motivate you and guide you and instruct you rather than just going it alone um, can certainly offer a lot of benefit and a lot of perspective for you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with geriatric nurse practitioner Christopher Norman, and we're talking about how to age well. So let's get on to this kind of psychological or mental sharpness kind of thing. What are the, what are the important things that we have to do part of which I think is probably staying physically fit, but to basically keep us mentally sharp. Sure. Well, there's this has become a very hot topic as people continue to age. That is the biggest independent risk factor for developing something like Alzheimer's disease, which is a type of dementia. And this is a conversation that I have with people on a daily basis. Um, luminosity and the different things like that that you see on TV that are advocated to strengthen your brain has received a lot of criticism. And we found in the neuroscience literature that that's actually not as robust of a help to a person's brain in keeping it sharp as maybe they've advertised and really maybe that it's playing on people's fears a bit more and it's more of a marketing piece actually that said it is important to keep your brain sharp and ways that you can do that is that i've found 
and the best in the literature is to help people re-engage in the activities and hobbies that they've always engaged in before, but maybe modifying somewhat. And in addition to that, trying to learn novel and new things, the type of activity that you're trying to do and the way that you go about it, even if you're not successful in learning new, a, a new language, excuse me, even if you're not successful in learning a new language just to... Um, for the sake of doing it, just going through that process and training your brain and going through that practice, that unto its own is keeping your brain holistically a lot stronger and a lot more robust than something like than something like doing a brain game where you're matching a color to a shape or something to that effect anyway. So language alone really has a very powerful, learning a language could really have a very powerful impact. It can, very much. It could, be, it could be juggling, it could be, it, it could be a learning a language. I mean, really anything that might strike your fancy as far as that's concerned. Learning a new instrument, perhaps. Learning a new instrument, most certainly. So the other thing that strikes me that seems very important is this notion of, and you mentioned the social and emotional Staying socially engaged seems to be a very important measure that people talk about in terms of people aging well mm -hmm. and having a sense of hope, optimism, connectedness, whatever you would however you would describe it. Certainly. Tell us about that. Well, I've, you've hit on a lot of the points right there, actually. Um, having a person that's socially engaged um, gets into a very interesting conversation with some people because not everybody is an extrovert. Not everybody feels comfortable in group settings. And there is so that's a big consideration when trying to consider um, what a person might benefit from the most anyway. There's some interesting literature that would suggest that people that are married for decades and decades and decades and have that and have that person with them that those people might live a bit longer than the person that's gone it alone for most of their life or because of circumstances beyond their control that's the way that their life has turned out anyway. And those feelings of those feelings of loss and how people cope with that is another sort of piece with this as well actually. Um, when we talk about older adults, there's this concept of reserves that we think of. There's not only functional or physical reserve or cognitive reserve, but there's also motivational reserve too, where there's only you, the hits that you take as far as the, the different events that happen in your life anyway. With those hits, you sort of keep on going, but you're a little more depleted, but you're able to sort of keep going because of what you've been able to do. It could come from your occupational history. It could come from how much you feel satisfied with your life and whether or not you've accomplished your purpose. Are you talking about a term I often hear called resilience? Is yes. that kind of what you're talking about? Resilience is a good synonym for all of that, yes. So basically, this idea of being socially engaged, what you're saying is it's not it's not one size fits all, but the fact that people do maintain connections with others can help them feel perhaps more vibrant within as they age. Yes. And the sense of independence, I think, is a big piece with this because threats to independence and a person losing their independence um, is always a big consideration with this. But I think it's important to realize that nobody actually ever lives independently. We all have, we all are dependent in some way on someone. In the little bit of time we have left spiritually, what, sure. what should people do? Well, finding your purpose and finding something that you can believe in, especially in retirement, I think is the biggest piece with um, a person's spiritual coping as they continue to age. When we're in our working years, it's a lot easier to find that because we're even if we're just going through the motions of our day, we're still accomplishing something. We're still accomplishing our what we might feel is our purpose. In retirement, that sometimes gets a bit more fuzzy because a person doesn't have as much structure 
to their day, but finding that purpose in what you can believe in and what you're going to feel satisfied with at the end of the day, even if it's just accomplishing your housekeeping for the day, or if it's going to someone's wedding, or if it's however you might define it, having that purpose and having something that you can believe in, I think is the most important piece there. Well, I'm going to leave it there. That's really a, a great way to end and a very important concept. This idea of having meaning in life obviously is tied in some ways to a personal purpose. Certainly. So thank you so much. My, my guest has been Christopher Norman. He's a nurse practitioner with Upstate University Geriatricians and obviously very wise in this field. Thanks for joining us, Chris. I'm Linda Cohen and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. up next, the effects of climate change and natural disasters on health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, the 2016 Ecuador earthquake occurred on April 16th of 2016 with at least 673 people killed and over 27,000 people injured. And here to tell us more about this time and how it affected health workers in the country, as well as the population at large, is Anna Stewart Ibar from the Center for Global Health and Translational Science at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming in, Dr. Ibarra. Thank you, Linda. So, you know, every time you come, and, and you've been here a number of times, mm -hmm. Anna, I, I'm so fascinated with your work. And so mm -hmm. I thought we'd start out, before we get to the earthquake, by just helping our listeners understand, first and foremost, what are you doing in Ecuador? Mm -hmm. Why Ecuador? Mm -hmm. Both those things sure. first. So I've been doing research on dengue fever and now Zika mosquito-borne diseases in Ecuador since 2007, so for almost 10 years now. Um, I am Ecuadorian and U.S. citizen, and so I have very strong personal links and professional links to, to the region. You have family in both places? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's it's really a joy to be able to bridge my, my work and life across these two countries. And so we've been working with the governments in Ecuador since, like I said, since 2007 to understand uh, the epidemiology of these diseases, which are now emerging and creating a major major chaos, really, in the in the region. Especially of late, Zika has really come to the forefront. Dengue's been around, and we've had Correct. great concern about it. Mm -hmm. But Zika today, with all of the birth defects mm -hmm. associated, has really kind of, you know, been thrust into the public consciousness. Yeah, I would say these are definitely one of the number one public health concerns in the country and in, in the world right now, really. And so your role there has been to basically try to determine what exactly? So our work has been focused on putting in place studies and, and this 
disease surveillance program to better understand the true burden of disease, who's at risk, why they're at risk, where the disease is coming from, and, and how it's being spread in, in the population. Now, we do know that in both dengue and Zika, you have this mosquito, the great mm -hmm. villain, the Aedes aegypti, <laughs> that is the vector. It is the thing that's spreading the disease from mm -hmm. person to person. But when you say how, you're mm -hmm. really talking more about what other criteria, what other environmental issues mm -hmm. will make one household or one community more likely to have these kinds of infestations or infections. Yeah, correct. So as you mentioned, Aedes aegypti mosquito is the main mosquito vector for the viruses. So the mosquito ha is infected with the virus, it bites someone, passes the virus to that person, and then it continues the cycle, similar to thinking about malaria or West Nile, you know, other diseases that we're familiar with. And so we're under trying to understand the household risk factors, but also the nutritional risk factors, the characteristics of the individual person, um, and the immunology that would affect you know, why people get more or less sick or why they're exposed in the first place. But then the goal of that, it would seem to me, so you're in the point now of gathering the information about prevalence, mm -hmm. incidence, mm -hmm. what factors contribute to that. Mm -hmm. And the goal then would be <clears throat> to develop some type of, with that knowledge, mm -hmm. interventions to prevent it. Right. So the goal of our work is to create this evidence base uh, so that we can help to work with the Ministry of Health and other partners to design interventions, better mosquito control techniques, or future clinical trials, for example, to evaluate dengue or Zika vaccines. Because those are in the works right now. And, and they're fast-tracked, but without them, the only, the, only, um, the only way to fight this, these diseases is to basically control the mosquitoes. Yeah, correct. So you were there... Mm -hmm. Living there and working there during the earthquake, what was that like? Where were you exactly when that took place? Yeah, so the earthquake happened last April, as you mentioned, and I was in southern coastal Ecuador, so not near the epicenter, but we felt it. Um, it was really probably one of the most traumatic events that I've lived, not the moment of the earthquake, but the subsequent days. And so... Uh, this was one of the most damaging natural disasters in decades in the country. As you mentioned, there were tens of thousands of people who were affected, sleeping outdoors without housing. And to top it off, this is now in an area where Zika is emerging as an epidemic. And so you have people who, without appropriate access to water, um, without housing. Clean water. Yep. Without clean water, so that there's being water that's being stored. And so it's perfect conditions um, for a major epidemic. And so when the earthquake hit, we made a decision to mobilize our research team to the site of the earthquake. And so we were there about two days later. We worked with the local Ministry of Health to start collecting data from the population. And then we very quickly mobilized and set up actually a clinic at a local school to start providing primary care to thousands of people who were affected, who, did, who needed basic healthcare services. So you were kind of, you put on a different hat. When yeah. you were doing research <clears throat> before and trying to get, kind of gather all this important data so that you mm. could make an impact on further treatment, right now you were involved in the relief efforts. Yeah, we were definitely on the front lines, and we felt it was you know, a moral and ethical imperative to be there. You know, There was nothing else that was more important. Right. And so, so what yeah. were you actually doing then? When you say, were you, obviously you're not a physician, mm -hmm. so you weren't delivering primary care. So help us, give us a feel for what yeah. you did do. So my role, and I was there with my husband, we were basically organizing the teams. There were so many people who wanted to help and volunteers, but they needed 
to be connected with the right partners. So we were in constant communication with the Ministry of Health, with the National Secretary of Risk, uh, and with local communities and NGOs. And through that partnership, we set up this clinic where many volunteer physicians came and have continued to serve and provide public health care to the community since then. I also coordinated with Upstate to set up a, a, fu- a fund to receive donations. Um, and we quickly raised about $5,000, which we used immediately to purchase basically medicine and basic supplies, rehydration therapies. And that fund is still open. And so as I mentioned, we're still there on the ground. I was just there two weeks ago, and we're continuing to work with the affected communities because what we tend to see is immediately after, immediately at the time of the earthquake and right afterwards, there's this huge you know, outpouring. Boom. There's an outpouring of interest and aid. But come now six months later... Uh, there's nobody, you know, but there is tremendous need. And so people are, things are better. People are getting on their feet. You can see it. There's a change. It's a palpable. It feels different. There's a lot of hope, but there's still a huge need. So basically, where are they at in terms of their uh, relief effort or, or even their reconstruction? I mean, mm. obviously a lot, there was a lot of damage, very severe damage, as you mm. said. So where are they currently right now? So there are still hundreds of families living without homes, homes, living in tents on the streets or living in, there's some formal shelters that have been set up as well. The government is planning to build new homes, but that probably won't happen until early next year. Uh, They were able to get power and water up, you know, within about a a month or so. But there's, there are long-term impacts because there are many people who also lost family members. Of course. And they're trying to you know, get get on their feet again. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with health researcher Anna Stewart-Ibarra. We're talking about the earthquake in Ecuador and its repercussions. So I guess one question that comes to mind immediately, obviously the immediacy of having to deal with all of the pain and suffering around you was the most compelling Mm. thing. But how did this earthquake impact on your earlier research Mm -hmm. or even the paradigm for your research because Mm -hmm. part of your research has also looked at environmental factors that may play a role in the transmission Mm -hmm. of these kinds of mosquito-borne diseases. So did the earthquake's occurrence, Mm -hmm. what what impact, if Mm -hmm. at all, did the earthquake's occurrence have on your research, I guess? So the this experience really made me understand how uh, natural disasters cause earthquakes or climate change disasters, which climate change I think is the biggest natural disaster facing humanity, how those inter, you know, interact to increase the risk of infectious diseases. So, and the other piece that was really striking to me was just how the trauma of the people, the psychological, the, the mental trauma also interacted to to cause much more illness, to increase people's susceptibility. And and more vulnerability. Yeah, so people are in shock, you know, and being able to, I think, understand the role of mental health in the face of natural disasters and how that interplays with infectious diseases like dengue or Zika is critical. Uh, And so actually we did about a week and a half, 10 days of medical campaigns in July with support from... um, volunteers who included medical students from SUNY Upstate Medical University, from Colorado University, and Dr. Joe Domachowski, who's an infectious disease pediatrician from Upstate. We attended to hundreds of people, and we actually gathered survey data from about 500 individuals working with the Ministry of Health. Uh, This was data that they had requested, and so we 
basically as a service help to gather data because they were interested in also looking at this intersection of Zika infection symptoms, trauma from the earthquake, psycho, tra psychological trauma, and uh, damages. And so that has led to a very close collaboration with the Ministry of Health that we are now working with them to be able to develop research questions and collaboration because I think this is a critical area um, especially when we think about climate change, climate change refugees, which are people who are forcibly resettled because of natural disasters, and how that will impact human health and infectious diseases. And then, of course, that knowledge to then develop some potential uh, interventions because, mm -hmm. you know, we can't control the natural disaster. We have mm -hmm. to then react to the natural disaster, but the question is, right. knowing ahead of time what the potential repercussions are mm -hmm. of a natural disaster might mm -hmm. help us plan for the kinds of interventions that need to be done. And um, right. obviously, so any of those opportunities, these, these are, it's sad to say, a, a crisis becomes an opportunity, but it can mm -hmm. be an opportunity for learning and perhaps preventing problems or further mm -hmm. problems should this re yeah. recur, not even so much in Ecuador, but anywhere in the mm -hmm. world. I think out of any disaster or, or crisis, there's tremendous opportunity to learn and to grow and to, to be innovative. We saw so many amazing people who were, who were on the ground. And as you mentioned, it's also a chance to bring in innovative technologies. And so we worked with a group called Waves for Water that had low-cost water filters. And so they were doing an amazing job to provide water filters. Clean water, wow. Clean water. On, on the other side, we've been doing work to develop low-cost mosquito control technologies. This would have been the perfect setting to be able to use that type of technology. Uh, you know, our, our technology isn't ready yet, but there are other people out there who are working on similar ideas. You know, whether or not, like you said, whether it's prevention or it's at the time of an emergency, we need to, to have low-cost, easily, as we say, easily deployable, you know, innovative, innovative methods to, yeah. to deal with these emerging infectious diseases and other public health crises. So what's happening there right now? You allude to the fact, are you going back? I will be back in several months. We will have a group from SUNY Upstate, likely there in December also. Um, we have full-time coordinators who are on the ground, nurse coordinators who have been mat receiving volunteer physicians, nurses, public health students from all over the world since so April. So still a great medical yes, need. definitely. And I would encourage anyone who is interested in, in volunteering or supporting the work in any way to reach out because there is a tremendous need and we plan to continue to work with the communities for a long a longer period of and time. And this have to do this has more to do with not specifically Zika or dengue, but specifically the results of the earthquake. Yeah. So we're or the sequelae to the earthquake. We have um embodied, a, I would say, a holistic approach to community health. And so we're providing primary health care. We've also been working with psychologists and therapists to deal with the trauma um, uh, that these communities have been facing. And then we have also been working with the Ministry of Health to collect important information on risk of Zika and these emerging infectious diseases. Well, it's, an incre it's incredible work and very, very important work. And I guess the question I would have is, how do you see at this point... <clears throat> your work continuing now with the change that's taken place with the earthquake, how will it impact very briefly mm -hmm. on what you see your work hmm. will be going forward? Yeah, so I would like to be able to continue to provide community health support, but also to do research to better understand the link between natural disasters and human health outcomes and infectious diseases, whether it's, a, like as I mentioned, an earthquake or whether it's major flooding events hurricanes, events linked to climate change. Uh, I think this is an, a critical area for research and how 
refugees or people who are forced to leave their homes, how they're managing uh, the, this this sort of double double whammy, as you'd say. Yeah, and what can be done to help them, exactly. obviously. And um, let's hope we see a vaccine down the road, but I know you're also working <laughs> on a kind of a low-tech mosquito control system that's still in process, but mm-hmm. I hope you'll come back and tell us more about that as it unfolds, because mm-hmm. regardless of whether we have a vaccine or not, mm-hmm. we got to control those mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So that's a crucial, crucial Mm -hmm. thing as well. So I want to thank you so much. Once again, it's always a pleasure to have you. I think I have tremendous regard for what it is you're doing and how you've devoted your life to not only helping the country of Ecuador, but through your work, Mm. really helping mankind because Mm. these kinds of uh, findings and these kinds of recommendations and interventions will really help all of us. So thank you so much. My guest is Diana Stewart Ibarra. She's from the Center for Global Health and Translational Science at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. we revisit the importance of organ donation in saving lives. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Nationwide, there are over 100,000 people on waiting lists for organ donations, and for some, time can simply run out. So why is there such a long list, and what can be done about it? Joining me with more on all of this is Rob Kochik. He's the executive director of the Finger Lakes Donor Recovery Network. Welcome, Rob. Thanks so much for coming in. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having us. So first, let's understand what your organization is, because I think it's important in the context of this whole discussion. What is exactly is the Finger Lakes Donor Recovery Network? Sure. Well, we recognize that our name doesn't necessarily always say exactly what we do. Um, so we serve as the organ procurement organization, if you will, um, and are truly the bridge between the patients that you mentioned who are on the waiting list and the patients who are in hospitals um, in our service area. Um, We um, provide, uh, we're one of 58 um, agencies throughout the country, so no matter where you live, there's an agency like ours. And we work with the hospitals in a 20-county area from basically Rochester to the least of here of Syracuse up to St. Lawrence River down to Elmira. And hospitals... um, are required by law, but no one really likes to do it by law, to notify us at or near the time of a patient that dies in the hospital. And then our staff are specially trained to go to the hospital to evaluate that patient to determine, first of all, whether or not that patient is a potential organ donor because we never want to offer the opportunity for donation if the patient is not medically suitable. And then we um, check the registry to see if the patient may have already indicated and documented their wish to be a donor. If not, we then identify who legally is responsible for making the decision on that patient's behalf, all of which then is to 
when, when we have consent to further evaluate the patient, to access the national list to see when our patients are the best match for the organs that may be available. And we actually also coordinate the surgical recovery of the, the donation of the organs. And then our job is done when the organs get safely delivered to the transplant center who is going to be transplanting the organs into the patient who is the best match. Well, it sounds like you play a very key role in procuring and making possible the, these basically these organ transplants. I mean, without your efforts and all of your work, obviously the organs would not be harvested properly and, and, and made available to those needy patients. But why do you see in your experience, why is there a shortage nationwide? What's contributing also to the growth of the need for organ transplants? Sure. Well, it's been 62 years since the first kidney transplant was done back in 1954 first liver transplant, or the first heart transplant in 1967, liver transplant soon after. And I think the waiting list is really somewhat due to the success of organ transplantation and the marvels that the transplant surgeons and the transplant teams literally perform um, at Upstate Medical University here in Syracuse and at Strong and literally all the other transplant centers in the country. So success um, in that means that more patients are potentially able to be helped through the benefit of a kidney, heart, lung, pancreas um, transplant. And yet, I think we as a public are still a little reluctant to have the very important conversations about whether or not we would like to help someone else upon our death. None of us like to think about that. So hopefully in our conversation today, we're going to encourage your listeners to have a, have a conversation. And I don't think we all recognize what a gift it is to let our loved ones know that, yes, I would like to do that. I'm, I'm hoping to keep my organs for a long time. Um, we've changed our message over the last few years instead of become an organ donor today that no one really likes to think about to pass life on, live life to the fullest, oh, and help an others do the same. Oh, that's a very interesting change in message. I like that very much. But has, in your experience, has the increase in the amount of diabetes in this country, which I know causes kidney failure, um, also played a role in terms of the increased demand for certain organs? Sure. Um, the greatest need, the greatest demand is for kidney transplants. And so you mentioned the, you know, more than 100,000 patients waiting for transplants. Locally, there's a, about 600 and some patients who literally are waking up this morning and saying, I wonder if today's the day that I'm going to get that phone call that I've been waiting for. And if we do our job right today, um, we hope to make some of those phone calls. But unfortunately, there's way too many families and patients who continue to wait for years. But of the 600 patients, about 400 of them are waiting for a kidney transplant. So kidneys are by far the ones that are the organs in most demand, as well as heart and pancreas, as well as sure. the other two? Heart transplant, liver transplant. So kidney transplants, the majority of patients are waiting for a kidney transplant. Next would be liver transplants. And in our area, someone who's waiting for a liver transplant waits for generally about a year to 18 months. And someone generally is waiting for about one year for a heart transplant, which means that 
the docs and nurses need to do pretty amazing things at the hospital to keep that patient healthy enough to be able to receive that transplant. But our mission, of course, is to have those waiting times be much, much more reduced and hence conversations. Um, when, a, when we're meeting with a family and if their loved one has not indicated their wishes, generally only about 50% of families are willing to make the positive decision to say, like for you, well, I'm sure Linda, we never talked about it, but I'm sure Linda would have wanted to donate because it was just the kind of person she was. All too often we hear the opposite of Linda didn't say anything, so I guess she didn't want to. And most of the time we just never get around to making those decisions. I want to underscore that, and I want to talk a little bit as we go further in the obviously the importance of this whole notion of advanced directives and how you can donate. But I have another question sure. for you. I mean, obviously what you're suggesting is that all of these types of organ transplants have been successful and that is what speaks to both the demand but also the fact that we're able to sustain life using them. Obviously, there would be no demand if they were all failures. So Literally. that's a very important Absolutely. fact as well. Absolutely. But despite that, I read a statistic that almost 15 Americans on the transplant list might die each day because of the basically the, the dearth yeah the shortage, shortage. so that's a very very and obviously if if the organ donation increased many of those deaths could be avoided so it sounds like that is a crucially important fact for people to understand so tell us briefly about the ways people can donate another in, in other words there are kind of three circumstances Sure. under which you can donate. Sure. Just go over that quickly. Sure. So um, one is living donation, where um, someone can donate a kidney. Um, and sometimes... While they're still alive, because they have two, and they can exactly. maintain life with one. Exactly. And living donation, kidney transplants are performed, again, both at Upstate and at, and at Strong, and, and virtually every other kidney transplant program in the country. Um we are the, the Finger Lakes Donor Recovery Network are primarily involved in what we call deceased donation. So after the patient has been declared brain dead in the intensive care unit, um, you know, again, we're coordinating the process that I described earlier. Um, the other possible way for someone to donate is they may not meet the neurologic criteria for brain death, but based on the patient's condition, the determination is made that they have no chance of recovery or survival. And um, the family, based on, again, patients' wishes or what they think their wishes would be, may elect to, um, to have the patient removed for the ventilator and die a natural death. And in certain times, some organs may be recovered um, under certain circumstances, such as a kidney or liver. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Rob Kochick. He's the executive director of the Finger Lakes Donor Recovery Network. We're talking about the growing need for organ donation and the ways people can donate. So you face a lot of challenges in procuring these organs, and you've alluded to some earlier on saying that in the case where nothing has been discussed, the tendency is to lean away from this kind of thing. Um, and there's no, for example, there's no living will or there's nothing, the person never really verbalized their wishes. So, um, but there are other things as well. I mean, are there certain myths or concerns 
and that people might have. For example, they may feel they're too old or there's something wrong with them. For example, they may have high blood pressure or they're obese. I mean, are there things that need, myths that need to be dispelled in terms of organ donation? Sure. Um, when we're out in the community, and hopefully your listeners have seen us at different health fairs or community events, uh, when people come up to us and ask questions, they often um, mention that they think they're too old and may be surprised to learn that you know, our liver in particular continues to regenerate itself. So that, and that when we're evaluating a patient, um, it's not necessarily our chronological age that is so important as well as, as much as what our body function is. So that for some reason I may not be able to donate my heart, but I may be able to donate my kidneys, or I may be able to donate my liver and I'm not able to donate something else. So again, we'd encourage everyone to, you know, if they're of the mind to be to give the gift of life, to enroll in the registry or tell their family and then sort of let us um, make that decision along with the transplant specialist to determine what is able or not able to be donated at the time. And, you know, you can imagine over the last, you know, even 10 years, the changes that continues to evolve in what um, is, is acceptable continues to change. Um, so years ago, as a young coordinator, if I saw the words hypertension or diabetes in the medical record, that was a medical rule out. But now, often patients have a history of hypertension but are well controlled under medications. So, you know, their kidneys are still working, their liver is still working. Um, so age is a myth. The other is, oh, well, I have this. Or someone will say, well, I wear glasses, so I couldn't possibly donate my corneas. Um, someone else may say, oh, you know, I have a drink every so often and I've really used my liver and, you know, we think they're just, you know, teasing. So we really encourage everyone to, um, if they're willing to do so, enroll in the registry, talk to their families, and then let us make that decision at the time. Because what may not be possible now, 10 or 15 years, ago, years from now, may very well be possible. So there's a new law relatively new law. Actually, it was in effect for the last couple of years called Lauren's Law. What is it? Tell us about it, and how does it impact on your recovery? Sure. So um, hopefully um, all of your listeners have seen when they've been to the DMV um, to renew their license or gather a new license, get a new license, um, the section on the application or renewal form that says, I'd like to enroll in the New York State Registry or skip this question. Um, that was put into place um, in honor of a little girl named Lauren Shields who received a heart transplant a few years ago um, in New York City and her family just wanted to do something to in increase the enrollment rates in New York State. So um, last year, um, while that section has been on the form for a number of years, it became a required section that the applicant must check either yeah, I'd like to enroll in the registry, or if they're not ready to make the decision, they can they can skip this question. Um, the other new thing that I'm happy to report is that Governor Cuomo, just within the last month or so, signed into law legislation to offer the opportunity for 16 and 17-year-olds to now enroll in the registry as well. When they enroll for their application um, for driver's permit, um, they'll be able to check the box. It'll still require parental consent until their 18th birthday, 
Um, but we know that 16 and 17 year olds are very often willing to think about helping others and very socially conscious. And it just seems like, you know, a wonderful opportunity for them to do so. You know, with the supply being so outpaced by the demand, allocation criteria must play a, a real role. And it must be very difficult to determine and hold on to. Just very briefly, we only have a few seconds left. Talk about that real briefly. Sure. Well, the, the importance is to um, identify the patient who can best use those organs um, that are available. And it is based on blood type, uh, body size. Sometimes it has to do with distance because while we're able to help someone in California receive a kidney transplant from someone here, we only have about four hours for the time to be between the time a heart is recovered from a donor to the time it must be transplanted. So basically, the work you're doing is of crucial importance. You can totally save lives, and people out there need to understand that they can give the gift of life, as you said, long before they die, if they just join a registry and indicate that and have conversations with their families to that effect. Absolutely. I want to thank you for coming in. My guest has been Rob Kochik. He's the executive director of the Finger Lakes Donor Recovery Network. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Jordana Gilman is a third-year medical student who hopes to specialize in women's health. Her poem, She Says, He Says, Emily, is both an auditory and visual delight. Our radio listeners must imagine each stanza reflecting the three speakers who are talking in parallel but not connected conversations. Here is She Says, He Says, Emily. I hope you'll see that the overall effect of this poem insists on our human connection. Overheard in the hospital gift shop, overheard in the clinic office, on the phone with my friend Emily. She was born on my bathroom floor, she says, He's been trying to die since the day he was born, he says. They found the cancer last night, Emily says. My granddaughter, my patient, my friend. And her mother, my daughter, and his mother, my patient's mother, and my mother, Emily says. She couldn't take care of her. She couldn't not take care of him. She's coming to town to take care of me. My daughter was two months shy of her 18th birthday, a child herself. His mother won't let him die. He defines her existence, her purpose. My mother is quitting her job to take care of me. The girl is five years old now. The boy is four years old now. I'm 24 years old now. Five years of calling me mama. Four years of dying already done. 24 years of just the two of us. I have custody now, admitted and discharged time and again, single mom and only child together through it all. She doesn't really know the difference. He doesn't really understand the suffering. She must be in denial about what this really means. But she still feels the pain. But he still feels the pain. But she still feels the pain. And my daughter, she lives at home again, 
And my patient, he's in the hospital again. And my mother is sitting next to me while I get chemo again. It's unclear, it's unclear, it's unclear. If she'll ever be ready for her life, if dying is better than dead, if this will cure me or kill me. But who knows, but mama knows best. But I know my mom will be here. For joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn about addiction to Imodium and visit with someone who kicked that habit. Plus, with the new creepy clown scare, what is clown phobia and how to face other phobias? And how to healthily navigate the world of fast food. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <music>